First Peter chapter three, verse number eighteen. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, Wherein, in the ark, few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Heavenly Father, we pray that uh, the scripture might be plain to us today. That you'd sharpen our minds in connection with our hearts. Receive what you have for us. May our Savior be glorified this afternoon. We pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. I'll begin with a brief explanation of this scripture. Peter begins with the gospel. Christ died in order that wicked, ungodly people like you and like me might be saved. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that we, that he might bring us to God. Another expression of the gospel is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Now using one of Peter's words here, Christ was through the operation of the Holy Spirit quickened, made alive, quickened. With verse 19, Peter begins a little parenthesis. He says that Christ through that same spirit that quickened him, preached to the unbelievers in the days of Noah, way back early in the book of Genesis, while that man was building an ark by which his family was saved. In that ark, Noah and his family were saved from the flood, in a sense by the flood, floating above the flood. With verse 21, Peter says that Noah's ark is like baptism. Baptism is a figure. It is a picture of salvation from sin. The like figure whereunto baptism doth also now save us. But please be assured that it is not the putting of the way of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter clearly says that baptism doesn't put away the filth of the flesh. Baptism does not wash away the sins of the flesh. It is only a picture, a figure, a type, an illustration, an image of the true salvation which comes through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus on Calvary. And now, Peter says... Our Savior is in heaven, 
there with angels and authorities under him. And I might add, he is in heaven today from where he intercedes on the behalf of those people that he saves. The thing I'd like you to notice is in verse 21. Baptism is the answer of a good conscience toward God. The answer of a good conscience toward God. In a few minutes, we're going to go back here and we're going to have the joy of the baptism of another child of God. We're excited about it. Among other things, I would like you to know that baptism is an expression of a good conscience toward God. I am right with God and my baptism is saying, I am, and we'll explain how that is an illustration. Now let's add to that thought. Turn to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. Where we read of the baptism of Christ Jesus. Matthew chapter 3. Verse number 13. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee. All the way down the Jordan, to the south end of the Jordan, unto John. Jesus came to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee. Comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John suffered him or permitted him. He baptized him. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water because it was in the river. He was immersed. And lo, the heavens were opened unto him. And John saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon Christ. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Tying these two scriptures together, 1 Peter and Matthew chapter 3, look again at verse number 15. And Jesus answering said unto John, suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. What was Jesus saying about fulfilling all righteousness? Maybe we should ask, why was Jesus baptized? Why was Christ baptized? Obviously, it was not to wash away the filth of the flesh. Christ was sinless. He was absolutely righteous in the sight of his heavenly Father. So why was Jesus baptized? It was in order to please his Father in heaven. It was in obedience. This is what the Father wanted to do. So he did it. As it was in Jesus, baptism has never washed a single sin from a single sinner ever. It doesn't do that. It cannot do that. So then why do we say that every Christian ought to be baptized? Why? Among other things, because it is the will of God that he be baptized. She be baptized. Just as it was with the Lord Jesus. It fulfills that aspect of righteousness which God demands of his new children, shall we say. Again, it doesn't start the process of our deliverance from sin. 
And it doesn't cement our salvation either. It is a statement. It is a testimony. It is a confession. I am a sinner saved by God's grace. I am now spiritually as dead to sin as Jesus was when he hung on the cross before they took him down. But I have a new life in him. Just as Christ arose from the grave, I have new life depicted in this resurrection from the water. Baptism is a testimony of a person's salvation. It is a confession. It is a profession. It is an expression of that person's new life in Christ. There were several differences between Jesus' baptism and the baptisms that John performed for others or on others. One of them is found in verse number 6 of this same chapter, Matthew 3. John was ministering in the wilderness, preaching repentance. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then went out to him, this is verse number 5, I'm sorry. Then went out to him, Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region round about Jordan, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. Confessing their sins. He demanded that these people confess their sins before he would baptize them. He demanded that they acknowledge themselves to be sinners. That's the way God sees all of us. We're a bunch of sinners. He demanded that they confess their sins. Of course, John didn't demand that of Christ. That would have been pointless. There's no sin for Christ to confess. But when some Pharisees and Sadducees wanted to join the crowd, everybody's getting excited about being baptized by John. So here come these uh, religious leaders down from Jerusalem wanting to be baptized. John said, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth fruit, meat for repentance. Show me in your life something that represents your repentance, proves that you are repenting people, that you are sorry for your sin. And then he added, and don't boast about your relationship to Abraham or any other worthy Israelite from history. That's nothing. My point is, before John would immerse anyone, he wanted to hear a humble confession of sinfulness and a need for a savior. Have you ever thought about the words confession and profession? In English, to profess and to confess are essentially opposite to each other. One is pro and one is con. Webster's definition of confess reads, to own, acknowledge, or avow as a crime. I confess a fault, a charge, a debt, or something that is against one's interest or reputation. The prefix con almost always means against whatever it's attached to. It's against. Pro almost always means for something. So as we might expect, Webster's definition of profess 
It says, to make an open declaration of, to avow or to acknowledge, to declare in strong terms, I agree with these things. When I looked up profess and confess in my Bible, I found two Greek words, but that was not what I was expecting. One wasn't translated profession, and the other translated confession. Homo loego means to say the same thing, and ex omulego means to say the same thing really, really strongly. And surprising to me, both words are translated profession over here and confession over here. Both words. They mix them up. The Bible, the Bible doesn't make any difference between confession and profession except within the context. So what? <laughs> What's the point? You're just wasting time here, Oldfield. The interesting part of the study was what God expects or commands us to confess. Depending on the context, sometimes the word is used positively. For example, there's Matthew 10:32, where Jesus said, whosoever, shall, whosoever therefore shall confess me before man, him will I confess before my Father which is in heaven. The Lord Jesus, man's mediator, intercessor in heaven, expresses a willingness to mention our names before his Father, before the Almighty God. Christ will mention our names, but there, there is no higher court in which to be named. This is it. This is the highest of them all. But, Jesus says, there is one prerequisite to my positive use of your name, and that is if you confess me. You confess me. The Bible reiterates this in Luke 12, 8. Also I say unto you, whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. Have you ever confessed yourself to be a sinner? Have you ever confessed that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? Stephen told his father, John Gano, shouted from the housetop, Stephen Gano's been saved. A similar verse is found in one of Paul's or Christ's letters to his churches in Revelation chapter 3. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed with white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. This is a positive confession. In fact, it is the word that expresses really, really strong confession. The Lord will delight to mention the name of these people before his heavenly Father. And with these verses in mind, if you would like to have your name uttered before God by the Savior, then you must confess Christ. Yes. And at least begin to serve him. It's a necessity, absolutely essential. 
After that, there's an extremely important statement found in Romans 10, 9 and 10. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Sinners are saved when they put their heartfelt trust on Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. They believe unto righteousness. They they trust the Lord. Confession with the mouth is the verbal act of expressing that internal faith. I don't know the man, but I read a statement by someone named Morrison who said... Confession is just faith turned from its obverse side to its reverse. Confession is when faith comes forth from its silence to announce itself and to proclaim the glory and grace of the Lord. Faith's voice is confession. Makes sense to me. I don't know about the first part, but the second part did. It is by faith that sinners are saved. But faith cannot be silent. It will explode out of the soul that's really been born again. It will. It'll be like a a volcano with lava pouring out. I am a child of God. I want the world to know that. Confession is the announcement to that world that God's grace has saved this wretched soul. So in this way, confession is like baptism or baptism is like confession. Baptism is a pictorial profession declaring my faith for salvation is in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only does the Bible reveal the positive side of confession, there's an important negative side as well. For example, there are the words of the Lord Jesus in Matthew 7. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. This is verse number 22. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name cast out devils? And in thy name done many wonderful works? Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. There will be millions of people who will eventually stand before Jesus Christ, expecting him to open the doors to heaven, who will never get to be there because the Savior will profess, Who are you? I do not know who you are. I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. There are millions who claim to be serving God, sometimes doing many wonderful works, but who never began at the proper point of beginning. Never confessed their sins before God. Never repented before God. They haven't begun where John exhorted them to begin. Repenting before God and confessing their sins. So they've been 
trusting their personal righteousness. They've been trusting their going to church, their membership, their tithing, their service, whatever it is. And they haven't cast themselves down before the Lord. Rather than repenting of their sins, repenting of their self-righteousness, trusting Christ's shed blood, they're either just expecting to go to heaven or striving to enter heaven on the strength of their own whatever works. Then will Christ profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Oh, how I pray that you are not in that number. Mm. Hoping to go to heaven, expecting to go to heaven, and not doing so because you haven't begun at the point of beginning. Repentance and faith in Christ. There's another negative expression or confession in the Bible which, uh, shall we say, separates the men from the boys. John 9.22 says, The Jews had already agreed that if any man did confess that Jesus was Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. Four chapters later, John 12.42, there are the very sad words, Nevertheless, among the chief rulers of the Jews... Many believed on Christ, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For that society and those people to be put outside the synagogue meant to be put outside their religion. It was, in effect, to be treated like a heathen dog with no hope, and no connection to the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, David, and the other Old Testament people. To be put out of the synagogue was to those religiously confused people an eternal death sentence. So they're not going to confess Christ. But the Lord who sparked that Jewish uh, declaration, I should say the man who sparked that in John chapter 9, was the blind man that Jesus healed. And the blind man eventually, well, he could see, was brought to the Savior once again after his healing. And he looked up into the face of the Lord Jesus with these miraculously restored eyes of his, and he, in essence, said, I believe you are the Son of God. And he worshipped Christ Jesus as his Lord and Savior. The man didn't care what the Jews said about staying in or getting kicked out of the synagogue. It didn't matter to him. Because he had a mediator in heaven there on his behalf. The person of Christ Jesus, the Savior. Now let's get back to the subject of baptism. Okay, what is the biblical ordinance of baptism? It is an act by which new Christians confess their sins. And like the blind man of John 9, profess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and he is my Savior. First it points a finger to the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. A death burial, resurrection. And then symbolically for that new Christian, it says that he has died to sin, 
He has buried his old life, and now he lives a new life in Christ. It is an expression or a confession of a good conscience toward God. It is the act of obedience to the command of God, and thus it fulfills one aspect of righteousness that the Lord requires. It's not a requirement for salvation. It's a requirement for service. Yes. On the greatest Pentecost in Jewish history, to which we had reference this morning, a multitude of people were under the conviction of the Holy Spirit for their sins. And out from that conviction, they cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? What can we do? What shall we do? And then Peter said unto them, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Baptism is an expression of a good conscience toward God. It is the first step in one's service to the Lord. There are a lot of professing Christians in these last days, they've probably already been, been here for a long time, but particularly now, who say that baptism is not important. How can they possibly say or even think that? Only through ignorance or rebellion. Jesus thought it was important enough to walk all the way from Galilee down several days' journey back and forth to be baptized of John. And God the Father thought it was important by publicly praising Christ at his baptism. Ananias thought it was important enough to tell a new Christian, Saul of Tarsus, Why tarriest thou? Arise! Be baptized! Paul thought it was important enough to speak about it in several of his letters to the churches. And Peter thought it was rather important, important enough to include in his answer to those Jews that said, What shall we do? Repent and be baptized, he said. It's important. Baptism is not a part of salvation from sin. As if there was some process that we follow in order to be cleansed of our sins. But the man who knows the command of God to be baptized and refuses not to uh, be baptized is not truly repentant. He's not surrendered to the Savior. There's another reason to wonder... Or here is one reason to wonder whether most of those people are really children of God. They put their foot down, they stomp, they, they, they clench their fist and say, no, I will not be baptized. Then what should we assume? I don't know the heart. I'm not saying that I do. Please remember that in this regard, we have Matthew 10.32. Whosoever, there shall con whosoever therefore shall confess me before whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. I didn't finish the rest of the next verse. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Someone's refusal. To confess Christ through baptism seems to bring about Christ's denial of that person before 
the Almighty God. Early in the history of Christianity, believers and followers of Christ were severely persecuted. It fell on them from the moment of their profession. But when that person was baptized, that's when the sky opened up and the lightning of these Christ-haters fell upon them. First it came from the Jews, then it came from the Romans and other uh, uh, heathen, and then true followers of Christ were persecuted by other people, false followers of Christ, other people who professed Christ. First there were hundreds of men and women who lost their lives because they were willing to be baptized. And then that little trickle became thousands until there were literally, over time, several hundred thousand people who lost their lives for their testimony of Christ, their confession of Christ, their baptism. Those who gave their lives for the Savior were known as martyrs, a word which comes from the Greek martus, which actually means a witness. For those martyrs, their witness, their confession often ended in death. And then there was a short period of time when those martyrs were called confessors. A confessor was a person who openly and willingly, publicly professed faith in Christ. But with a special twist. Here's Webster's second definition of confessor. Webster put out his dictionary in 1827. I constantly refer to it. I Google definitions, I'll admit to that, but uh, this one goes way back. A confessor is he or she who makes a profession of his faith in the Christian religion. The word is appropriately used to denote one who avows his religion in the face of danger and adheres to it in defense, in defiance a persecution and torture. It was formerly used as synonymous with martyr. Afterwards, it was applied to those who, having been persecuted and tortured, were permitted to die in peace. At that period of time, a confessor was someone who was martyred for his faith in Christ. It has been true throughout history, and it's still true in parts of the world today, that to confess Christ through baptism means persecution. And in some places it means death. When our loving Savior tackles a sinner, saving his soul and giving him a life worth living in this world, there should be a reciprocal desire to glorify the Lord for, for what he has done. To praise him for what he has done. A willingness to confess him. And it shouldn't matter to that person what the world or his family has to say about it. That believer has become the citizen of another world. He's ready to go. He's part of another family. So when, like that blind man in John 9, he is born again, he will not be silent. You are the Christ. You are the Son of God. And my faith is in you. Jesus is the Christ. He is my Savior. I love him and give my self to him. Therefore, I willingly consent to baptism. Is that the right way to put it? I want to be baptized. I want to display my death and burial 
resurrection. Are you a confessor? Maybe you've not used that term before, but think about it. Are you a confessor? Have you confessed Christ through the illustration of baptism? Are you actively serving the Savior? You're not? What right do you have to call yourself a child of God? I'm not saying that you're not. I'm saying you don't have much grounds to do so. In the face of Scripture to the contrary, do you think that Christ will confess you before His Father when you refuse to confess Him before men? In something that the Bible clearly commands you to do? Are you fulfilling all righteousness as Jesus did in His baptism? If it's not to baptism, to what do you point as the answer of a good conscience toward God? If you are indeed a child of God, and you have hope of eternal life in the presence of God and the Savior, then you need to do all of those things which the Lord has instructed you to do. And they begin right here. One of them, the first of all of them, after repentance is to be baptized. Men and brethren, what shall we do? Repent and be baptized. Would you be willing to confess Christ in the confines of this very safe auditorium? What about out there? What about among your friends? Are you willing? Remember what the Savior has done to redeem you. Do you need to be baptized as a testimony, as a confession of your faith in Christ, as an answer of a good conscience toward God? We're going to baptize Matthias in a few minutes. We're not going to drain the water. We'll leave it there for a while. Just for you. I thank you for your attention.